We're looking at Song of Solomon chapter 4. However, we're going to read first of all from 2 Corinthians 11.2. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Today we're going to talk about fathers, but we're going to start out talking about uh, marriage because the best thing you can give your children is a good marriage. And broken homes, you can read the stats. Broken homes are the worst things for kids. That's one of the worst things for kids. We know that. I mean... It's just a tragedy to see families come to an end and children to be torn in half by feuding parents. So we're going to read one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. And it's a custom here to stand. So when you find that stand, the word father is found somewhere. It's found in the dictionary. It's found actually between two words. It's found between fathead and fatigue. A lady would say, I can understand it being close to fathead, and men would say, I can understand it being close to fatigue. But uh, that's where father rests in the dictionary. Today we're going to talk to our fathers in a moment. First, let's talk for a few moments about husbands and wives. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, For I am jealous over you with goodly or godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world, that we'll glean handfuls that you've given us on purpose. And Lord, you haven't just given us handfuls. We thank you. You've given us an abundance of Scripture. And we pray that today we'll just learn and grow and apply it to our lives. Bless now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're going over to Song of Solomon. And we'll be in chapter 5 and then chapter 4. But before we look at Song of Solomon, let me introduce the book to you. In chapter 1, verse 1, we know the title in verse 1 is Song of Songs. Literally, that means the best of songs. The title Canticles is also a title used of this book. If you read literature, you'll know that. It means delightful poem. Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs. You can find that out in 1 Kings 4.32. And in this passage, we find six songs. These songs were written 950 years before Christ came to the world. And we know that this portion of Scripture is read during the Passover. And so we look at this wonderful book. We're going to mention five things about the book before we look at the book. First of all, it's literal. It's literal. It's not an allegory, but a true story. It's a story about three people. Solomon, the Shulamite woman, and her true love. Solomon only knew about lust, and uh, this woman wanted true love, and of course her true shepherd would be what this is about. It's written in poetic fashion, so it can be a play, and these three characters are the stars of the show. Although this was Solomon's only pure attempt at a relationship, it was based on lust. And this woman desired love. Solomon lusted. The true shepherd always loves. The Shulamite woman had been taken from her true love and forced, forced into Solomon's kingdom to be part of his massive group of women. And we know someone said he had 300 wives and 600 porcupines. He had lots of women, didn't he? And uh, we know he had concubines and women and, and, and all kinds of women. And she was one who was forced into his harem. And, and so here she is now longing for her true love. It's also historical. The story did take place. And uh, we know another wedding was 
had taken place in the Old Testament. Israel had been married to the Lord at Mount Sinai, a great covenant there. In fact, Isaiah chapter 54 says in regards to Israel, for thy uh, for thy maker is thy husband. In other words, Israel was married to God. We find later God divorced her because she loved other gods. And so God divorced her, but there was a historical wedding at Sinai. Then it's a type or typical, we could say. It speaks of God's love for Israel. And it also speaks of Christ's love for the church. It's doctrinal because it speaks to us of past love, Calvary. Of present love, as Romans 7.4 says, we are going to be married to Christ. And then future love, Revelation 19, there is going to be a marriage where we are going to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ, our groom. Now the Shulamite woman ultimately would end up with her groom, but she's a type of a sinner. She's a slave in Solomon's kingdom, just like we're a slave to sin, according to Romans chapter 8. Eventually, her true love would set her free. And of course, we know Scripture teaches we'll no longer be a slave to sin when we're saved. And Romans chapter 8 tells us that all creation waits for deliverance from sin and the curse, and that one day will happen. She's redeemed by her lover in the end of the story. We're not going to look at all that today. Titus 2.14 says he gave himself a ransom for us. We know we're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians says. Ephesians 1.13 and 14, he's the earnest of our inheritance. In other words, he put a down payment on our lives at Calvary. He owns us, he bought us, and one day he's going to redeem us. We've been redeemed spiritually, but one day we're going to be redeemed entirely. Isn't that going to be great when the Lord comes back and straightens this whole mess out? And then finally, we want to say that it's practical. It's practical. It speaks of uh, our love uh, for our wives and our wives' loves, love for our husbands, and of course, how Christ also loves the church. And here we learn in chapter 5, verses 10 and following, that we are to speak how we're supposed to speak to Christ uh, as our groom and how women should speak to their husbands. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Then we'll talk about how husbands should speak to their wives. And then we'll talk about the result of true love, being parents and being a good father. In chapter 5, verse 10, just quickly, we find that uh, he's called white. White speaks of purity. We know Revelation 1.14 describes our groom, the Lord Jesus, as pure, as white. He's the chief of 10,000, it says here. We sing the song, he's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. His head is gold, speaking of deity. His hair speaks of his headship. His eyes are called dove's eyes here, which speaks of the gentleness of his love. His cheeks, we know Isaiah says his cheeks, they pulled the hair out of the Lord's cheeks, his beard off. His lips speak of sweetness, and his hands, which bore judgment, his side bore the spear. And all these things are named. His legs speak of foundation. His countenance never changes. It's mutable. It's like cedar that always uh, smells good. His mouth is lovely. He didn't even open his mouth, Isaiah 53 tells us. But notice verse 16. It says his mouth is sweet. And, and then we find she says about her true love, this is my beloved. This is my friend. They say the best person marries your best friend. If you marry a friend, you'll have a good relationship. If you marry just for looks, you can have a bad relationship. I mean, Solomon bring all these beautiful women in, but he didn't know a thing about love. Because if he knew anything about love, he'd be committed to one woman. Because love is given of yourself. Love doesn't take. Lust takes. 
love gives. Now look at chapter 4. So we know, wives, you're supposed to speak to your husbands like this. Chapter 5. Chapter 4, husbands, how do you speak to your wives? Well, we learn in chapter 4, verses 1 and following. We know that he says, thou art fair, my love. Thou art fair. Uh, and that really is a word that can be translated beautiful. And he says it three times, you're beautiful. So he notices her beauty, but we notice something special here is that he looks at every detail of her. When was the last time you said to your wife, you know, I love your makeup today? Or, you know, I've always thought you have cute ears. Now, men are getting embarrassed, but and women are saying, that's a little much for us. He's never done much of it. But actually, that's really what you should do, is say those sweet things to your wife. And, and send your wife a nice text every day. But her eyes, he talks about her eyes. Uh, and, of course, he describes the bride, the Lord describes the bride as, as the true love described the bride, as beautiful, as fair, and sees her as perfect. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ sees his bride as perfect, the perfect bride. And so he sees her as beautiful. He talks about her eyes and uh, how she is, uh, the, the word, uh, single eye is, is a means to be devoted to one. And so he recognizes her devotion to him. She had eyes of understanding as Ephesians describes the bride. We're supposed to be understanding with our wives. Uh, we're supposed to look into their eyes. You know, when you're first dating, you, you look and you listen, and you're patient, and you, you just listen to all those stories. And sometimes when you listen to a girl, you think, is she going to go anywhere with this conversation or is this about nothing? Sometimes it's just about how her day felt. And we're not, not into feeling. We're into fact, you know. And so we have to work hard to learn to look and to listen, and, and that's so important. Her hair, he talks about her hair. He talks about her teeth. When was the last time you said something about your wife's teeth? Uh, I remember, you know, we mentioned the honeymooners. Uh, he, he wanted to hit Alice and send her to the moon. And that would include, I guess, knocking her teeth out. But, uh, there are men that knock their wives' teeth out. That's not what you do. You recognize that she's a knockout because of her teeth. She's pretty. And compliment her on her teeth. And her lips, scarlet. And they, of course, you know, he complimented her on that. I know the Bible says we should let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth. So lips are, are, are valuable in a relationship. Then he talks about even her head, her temples, which speaks of meditation. The Bible says to meditate on the Lord in the night watches. Think on these things, the Bible says, talking about the Lord. And we're told to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. So to be a good Father, you have to be a good husband, to be a good listener, and that's all challenging for each of us. Then he talks about her, not only her, her, uh, her, 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 excuse me, her head, he talks about her neck, which speaks of determination. You've heard the expression, a stiff-necked person. Finally, he talks about her breast, and that's last, because if you said all the other things and you have a right to her breast, but if you haven't said the nice things to your wife, she's not going to want you to touch her. Because relationships matter long before the bedroom, you know. And so here is a great example of how a man should talk to a woman and how a woman should talk to a man. And I said something in the beginning that, uh, you know, uh, the best thing you can offer your kids is a good marriage. A broken home is, is, is terrible. 
But notice in verse 7, as we close out Solomon, then we're going to go to Proverbs. Verse 7, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Again, the third time he says she's fair. And that doesn't mean she's average. It means she's beautiful. And so he tells her three times, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And then he says, there's no spot in thee. What's that a type of? You know, the Lamb of God was without spot. Without spot. And that while we think of the Lamb, that really meant physical spot in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Deuteronomy chapter, well, just look at 32 and Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'll read these and we'll go over to Proverbs. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, we know that the spot doesn't just reference physical physical problems. It represents a spot morally, 32.5. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. There we find this reference to the word spot is more than just a physical blemish. It's a moral blemish. In Deuteronomy 17.1, I'll read one more verse. Deuteronomy 17.1, Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any Evil favorableness, for that is an abomination of the Lord in that day. And that's the same word, spot. Blemish and spot are the same. So God sees us as without spot and blemish. And it's more than a physical spotlessness. It's also moral. God sees us as a finished product. Isn't that great? You know why He sees us as a finished product? Because He looks at us and the blood of Jesus is covering us. He doesn't see our sin. And now when you sin as a Christian, the fellowship's broken. He sees that. But the moment you confess it, it's gone. You're cleansed. I like that. So you have repentance for salvation, but then for, for, for your relationship with God, you have to have confession. We've talked about that so many times. Wednesday night I said, how many sinned today? And every hand went up. So let me say it again. How many sinned today? With a thought. Maybe with a bad thought or maybe one little bit of impatience. Maybe this has been a short day you haven't had a chance. But then I always say, all right, if you sin today, how many of you confess today? You see, that restores that relationship because you have a blemish when you sin and you don't confess it. God can't bless you. He can't even hear your prayer. And so here we have this spotlessness so important. And I think as fathers, uh, one thing we need to learn to do is to say we're sorry. Not just to God, but to our kids. You know how many mistakes I've made as a father? Would you like me to count them? I couldn't count them, could I? Why? Because I've made every mistake. People said, don't spank your children in anger. Done that. Don't be impatient. Done that. Don't be a bad example. Done that. I can go on and on and on. So it's important for us to have our kids understand that we fail all the time as fathers. And the only way to get through those rough times is when we do make the mistake to ask God to forgive us and then to say to our kids, will you forgive me? I did the wrong thing. You know? I remember when I was driving and one of my kids would say, Dad, you're getting kind of close. What person needs to hurry up? I'm going to hurry. Well, they don't know I'm going to hurry. I'm the only one that knows I'm in a hurry. And, and then 
Dad, why are you going slow? Are you trying to irritate that guy behind you because he's tailgating? Well, he doesn't need to be in a hurry. But Dad, just yesterday, and we do everything imaginable wrong in rearing children. So, you know, the good marriage is one thing, but then the good example is another. We are going to fail as fathers, so we have to ask for grace. And our children learn the concept of grace. I was reading about <laughs> parenthood. There's an organization called NON, National Organization of Non-Parents, because children follow up our lives. We don't want kids. Uh, you know, it, it's another th one third of couples today say they don't want children. That's understandable. But 70% of parents said they wouldn't want children if they had to, had to do it over again. Think of that. 70% of parents say if they had to do it over again, they wouldn't want kids. That's not, that's not the way I feel. For my kids, I don't know what I'd have, but thank God for them. Many children, of course, are abandoned because parents are all about making money and buying things. The greatest asset you have in this world is not the boat or the camper. I saw a guy today pulling out. You know, he had to go way out in the other lane. He's pulling a car and a motor home. I thought, you know, what's up with that? I would not want one. If I was rich, I wouldn't have one. Do you know to pull a car? This is way off the subject, by the way, if you can't figure it out. Do you know to pull a car to Florida, the gas and the cost of the RV park is more than flying down there, renting a car, and staying in a motel? Who would want to pull one of those things? But anyway, so many people, their whole lives are wrapped up into the things they can acquire, you know, to impress people. We buy things we can't afford with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And, you know, we need to learn to live within our means and realize that our assets are not physical things that we're going to leave behind, but the children we pour our lives into who are going to bring another generation into the world. So they're so vitally important. Proverbs chapter 23 is a great verse. I want to talk about that for a minute. We've already talked about being parents and how vitally important that is in rearing children. But also being what we ought to be in the Lord is vitally important. Proverbs 23, 24 is a great verse. It says, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice. And he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. A father that rejoices. The father of the righteous rejoices. Why? His kids aren't embarrassing him. His kids are a good example. People notice their lifestyles. And they say, boy, you did a good job rearing those kids. The word rear is the right word. We raise crops, we rear kids. But boy, you did a good job rearing those kids. And when your kids are in trouble, it's embarrassing for you. But when your kids do right, the Bible says we greatly rejoice. Where I've never thought of abandoning my kids, there's been time I've thought about killing them. But they're the greatest joy to have in life. And so teaching them to live righteous lives is so important. My poor kids were in church Sunday morning. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and youth activities. <laughs> that was rough on them, I'm sure, but it was also very good for them. 
It's hard to make good grades when you go to church two or three times during the week, during the nights, and they, they had to work extra hard. I was proud of them, but I really wanted their church experience to be real rather than just going through the motions. And, uh, of course, when you're a pastor, you know, they're always watching your kids, you know. Uh, I don't know how many times people came up and said, we understood that you let your kids do this. I remember a lady was concerned because I let my kids take their shirts off at the beach. I said, yep. Well, why do you do that? Because they're kids, and you were a kid once too. Oh, but we heard you let your kids go to animated movies. Yep. Why do you do that? Because they wanted to go, and because you, I, they're kids, and you were a kid too. You know, I mean, people want to just, you know, it's difficult being a pastor and having kids. And when a pastor's kids mess up or a pastor's kid, everybody knows it, you know. And, and so that was always challenging, but I never wanted to put things on my kids to please others. I didn't raise my kids for others. I raised my kids for the Lord. And if that, what they were doing was not sinful, according to the Scripture, and in the Lord's eyes, I let them have some freedoms, and those aren't the greatest freedoms they have, but, but I, I'm telling you, don't, don't worry about your kids and, and trying to raise them to impress the neighbors. Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not the neighbor. You know, not Uncle Joe. Poor Uncle Joe. I don't want to pick on Uncle Joe. But that's not why we pour our hearts into our kids. We want them to live for God and bring another generation along that also lives for God. But here we find Proverbs 23, 24. Then also Proverbs 17, 21 says, The father of the fool hath no joy. How many people do you know that is a son that just embarrasses him? Or a daughter? Proverbs 17, 25, A foolish son is a grief to his father. Proverbs 19, 13, A foolish son is the calamity of his father. Proverbs 19.26, He that wastes his father is a son that causes shame and bringeth reproach. There are numerous verses we could read about the son embarrassing the father. So children, if you want to hurt your mom and dad, just live for the devil. You'll hurt him plenty. But if you want to please them, live for God. Live for God. Now I have down here a ninefold failure of fatherhood. I want you to listen to carefully to these. First of all, don't overprotect them. Don't overprotect them. If you do, you'll make them cowards. If you go to school and fight with a teacher on your son's behalf or your daughter's behalf, you're making a big mistake. Side with the teacher. Side, there'll be enough parents giving that teacher grief if they're a mean-spirited teacher. Don't you do it. Teach your kids to respect their teachers, even if their teachers aren't very good at what they do. We, we don't teach our kids to respect people they like or respect people they agree with. We teach our kids to respect adults, period. It's quiet, but you know that's so important. I coached all my kids in sports, except maybe Daniel. He was the youngest, and I didn't get to coach him as much, but I coached the others. And I've told people the hard thing about coaching is dealing with the parents not dealing with the kids. You can have an un unbeaten Little League team and still have unhappy parents. You can make sure everybody plays two or three innings in a game and still have unhappy parents. So they want a different position or a different batting order. And you can't please them. But, but a parent like that is only harming their kid, fighting their battles for them. 
Second of all, don't show favoritism to certain kids and not show equal love and favoritism to all of them. I mean, the story of Joseph just rings loud and clear. His brothers hated him so much. They were so envious. The Bible says they hated him, wanted to kill him, threw him in a pit. That must have been the pits. But that's because dad favored Joseph and bought him that coat. Wouldn't put him in the field to work. But what that does is make the others feel envious. And envy will ruin relationships. Do you know most problems in, in, in homes are envy between kids? One of them feels you love them better. I used to spank one of my boys because he'd holler, I hate Zach. So I'd spank him and he'd say again, I hate Zach. And I didn't let him say that, so I spanked him again. You know why he said that? Because he hated Zach. Zach teased him all the time and got by with things. And so I would spank him and he'd say, I'd spank him for saying that. Then I didn't know, but Zach would come around the corner when he was getting a lick and go and run back in his room. But I had to try to be even Stephen and spank him for, you know, equals. That's so difficult. But you cannot show favoritism. Then another thing we do is we, we push them to perfection. And they never measure up. You know what happens? That builds insecurity. When your kid doesn't measure up, well, you don't make good enough grades. You're not as good of athlete as you should be. And, and you're not that good on that instrument. And you're not this good. And you're not as good as, you know, and, and what that does is make them feel insecure. I've known insecure men. They're difficult to deal with. Insecurity is a bad thing to build in your children. Your children are going to be what they are. Your encouragement will help them. Their nurturing will matter but they're all different. They will all excel in different areas and appreciate, guys, the piano player as much as the football player because they're all different. It's hard to love them. I mean, I'm not going to a piano recital and say, good job, yeah, you know, but, but I can show appreciation after the recital's over, you know, and the kid that plays the trombone or the instrument is just as important as the athlete. Now, if you're a musician, you say, no, no, no. Your musician's more important than the athlete. But you know what I'm saying. Sometimes we have something one kid likes and we just pour all our heart into that one kid. I knew a guy that would go fishing with his kid all the time. His other kids didn't like fishing, so they never had any time with dad. Maybe you need to go to the rodeo with one of them or the car show or whatever. But we cannot, we cannot show favoritism. We cannot... Uh, push them, and expect things out of them they're not capable of doing. Not all your kids are going to make A's. Don't compare them. If you have an A student, thank God for it. But praise the other one for keeping his room clean. Or being good to the neighbor boy. Not being a bully. There's, there's positives. And they say that, that if, you, if you compliment a kid ten times to one point of criticism, it'll make a lot of difference in the kid's life. And when you do have to criticize them, He's not going to just tune you out because you're always building him, always building him. These are so important, these, these little tips from our Christian psychologist. And then, and then he says, you know, reward them. If you don't reward your kids, they feel discouraged. I learned the importance of positive words later in life. <laughs> but you know how to learn the importance of positive words? Just experiment with your dog. I got one little dog, 
And um, she went to the bathroom in the house yesterday. But when I put her outside, she won't come. She'll just lay in the street and sunbathe. Car's coming. They have to slow down, and she gets up and slowly moves out of their way. And I call her, and she just kind of looks at me. I'm not ready to come in now, and then I get mad. Zoe, get in here. I've got to go. She doesn't understand that. All she says is, I ain't getting near him now. <laughs> and that kind of tone's kind of the same way with kids. Positive reinforcement is the only way I get her in. If I say, you want a treat, she'll come in. Now, I'm not going to give my kid a treat for everything they do, but it's so important to encourage we talk about in church how it's important to encourage, encourage one another. It's the same way in child rearing, encouraging your kids. It's hard sometimes, you know, they, especially when they're young and they bring home something they've colored and they give it to you, and especially when you're looking at it and saying, what a joke, what is this? I don't even know what this is. And they're looking at you. Here, here's where it starts. They're just three years old, and they drew something for you in Sunday school. Oh, that's a great effort. You can say something. It's hard to lie and say that's a really pretty picture. But what a great effort here. There's a way you can do it. And then you learn as they get older to encourage them. So important to reward them. Then he says here, be willing to sacrifice for them, because if you aren't, they'll feel unwanted. Uh, if you raise kids, you have some pretty pricey things in their life. I mean, you know, playing select sports. Oh, my word, the traveling and the motels and all that for select sports for my daughter. And then for my sons, the, the injuries and going to the hospital for everything. You think, ah, oh, nothing wrong with anything, tough it out. Find out they got a broken bone or something. And you're like, you know what? I got to spend all this money on them. But if you make them feel like that, they're going to be discouraged and feel unwanted. They're valuable. And you pour a lot into them for 15 to 25 years, whatever. I said a couple nights ago, if they're still home later in life, you know, it's time to kick them out and do like the eagle and stir the nest up to get them out. But you're responsible for them until they're adults. And you pour a lot into them. But let me tell you something, the investment will come back and reward you greatly. Then another one here they say is allow them to be children. If not, they'll lose their spirit. Uh, my daughter-in-law has a little thing on her wall that said, let them be little. And I thought, that's, that's nice. We, we start to expect kids to grow up. We want them to do something they're really not capable of doing. Do you really expect your two-year-old to sit through a church service without screaming at some point in time or doing something to embarrass you? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we have to expect that, but we have to let them be children with good discipline. Then here's another one. Don't neglect their emotional needs or they'll live a lonely life, meeting your child's emotional needs. And I know it's different with boys and girls. I mean, with my boys, it was like, just get out there and do it. Well, you do that with a girl, and she's going to say, back. And you're like, wow, this is a... My four sisters. And I was, I was in the middle of two of them. I fought with them all the time. Actually, I teased them and they hit me. Uh, I never hit one of them. I would have liked to if I'd thought about strangulation, other things, never, never did it. 
I'm real close with my sisters now. Talked to my sister Pam this week and my little sister this week. My one sister went to be the Lord at 56 because of cancer. But we're real close as adults, but we fought like crazy. But, you know, meeting a boy's needs and a girl's needs are different. And I, I, one thing is I wished I'd had a girl maybe earlier in life to learn how to meet emotional needs and keep that eye, con- eye contact going because it helps you to have a daughter for your marriage. Then show affection. If not, you'll make them feel unwanted, empty. I, I've told people who've come to me and said, I don't understand why my daughters, it's been daughter things a lot, has done this or that. And quite often I find out that dad has never touched his daughter. And I've said, hug your daughters. You touch them in an appropriate way, and it's less likely to let someone else touch them in an inappropriate way. Touch is very important in rearing kids. I'm sure my kids have overlooked a lot of my failures because I've touched them a lot. Uh, about a year ago, I, Zach came home two years ago, and I'd seen him a long time, and I hugged him, and I kissed him on the cheek, and he's like, oh, well. <laughs> I don't usually kiss my boys, but if I hadn't seen them in a long time, maybe I may have that outburst of emotion, but I'm an affectionate guy with my kids, and that's covered a multitude of my mistakes. But a girl needs touch from a dad. Everyone says it. Everyone should hug their daughters. It it doesn't end when they become adults. The hug changes. But the touch is so important. And if you're going to raise kids or you have raised kids, please touch your kids. Hug your daughter. Hug your son. Show them affection. And then if, if it's important to use sweet words rather than bitter words and excessive punishment because excessive punishment makes them resent you. Quite often I meet Someone who says, well, I can't stand my mom or dad. Why? Man, they were just so strict. I was miserable growing up. It's too bad. It's too bad. You know, we are dysfunctional people. Did you know that? Did you know every one of us is dysfunctional? If you're a fallen man, which you are, Adam sinned for death hath passed upon all men for all of sin. You're a fallen man. That means you're a fallen woman. That makes you dysfunctional. Now, we all think the other guy's dysfunctional. I'm perfectly balanced, and you all are dysfunctional. That's what we think. But actually, we're all dysfunctional. Normally, we don't see it in our own lives till someone points it out. Well, that's odd. I've never heard of that before. What? But we're all dysfunctional because we're all sinners. So we all make mistakes in rearing kids. In our marriages, we make mistakes because of our dysfunction. I have some weird things. I'll tell you some of my funny dysfunctions. I grew up learning to never let anything go to waste. My mom had this thing where she used everything. You know? She canned things before they got bad. Heat up the bananas were rotten. What did she do, ladies? She made banana bread. 
we'd have one little piece of toast. That would be the morning's breakfast with peanut butter. And there were nine of us, seven kids, my mom and dad. We didn't let anything go to waste. My mom would say, now there's a half an apple. I got sick of apples. We always had apples, but my mom didn't let anything go to waste. So I grew up with that mentality, and I married a girl whose mom and dad had an abundance of food, and there's always food. And I'm always like, boys, there's some more of this. Would you finish this up? No, Dad. And it annoys them. Come on, finish, don't let that go. Finish that up. So rather than let it go to waste, it often goes to waste. This waste. I'm dysfunctional in that. I'm also kind of a germaphobe. And, and those aren't bad things. I'm not going to tell you all my really bad things, but we're all dysfunctional, aren't we? Every one of us is different. Every one of us is different. We're unique, but we all have, we have a fallen nature. And we're dysfunctional. And we're separated from God because of our dysfunction, which is a result of sin. It's not sinful to be a germaphobe, but it's a little over-excessive. And so we have something in our lives, and our kids sometimes tell us, Mom or Dad, that's weird. But they grow up with some dysfunctions as well. And they marry someone, and then between them, they produce dysfunctional little children called sinners. But God commended his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died on the cross and took all my sin and my weirdness and my dysfunction. And he says, I'll, I'll use you even in spite of who you are and what you are. I'll use you if you submit to me in spite of all your weirdness. And that's the thing about an awesome God. We fail, but he can still bless our lives because he's God. And our God is an awesome God. A God who loved us enough to send Jesus to die for our sins. So today, as we close, I want you to think about the fact that today you got a new opportunity. A new opportunity. You say, well, I've raised my kids. Call them today. And if they have been hurt by something you've done, Dad, call them up and say, you know, I know and I'm never apologize to you for this, but today I want to ask you to forgive me. That's spiritual leadership. That's humility. And some of you need to call your dad and say, Dad, I, I'm so sorry for the fact that I've hurt you back then, and that's just come to my mind. The Holy Spirit brought it to my attention, and I want to make it right with you, Dad. Please forgive me. But most of all, God, I know I failed you. Please forgive me. And if you're not saved today, God, I know I'm lost. Save me. And he will. Thank God for Jesus, the Savior of the world. God bless us on this Father's Day. Lord, help us to be good fathers today, to start afresh and anew. Now, we can't change our mistakes. And as children, we can call dad and apologize as parents we can apologize but lord most of all we can bring it to you at your feet and receive the grace and mercy we need because of our dysfunctional sinfulness god thank you bless us now in jesus name amen